Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Howard Smith, and I will be your host for today's program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society with Ronaldo Brutico. Ronaldo, as you all know, is the president of the World Business Academy, and I'm a member of the board of directors of the Academy, as well as a vice president and wealth advisor with Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. Um, we're actually having some technical problems this morning, so I'm trying to get us up online. Um, and at the moment, uh, unfortunately, we cannot connect with Ronaldo. Um, during today's program, however, when we get connected, Ronaldo will be covering several broad-ranging topics along with our lightning round. As always, we include your questions and comments. We also have a guest speaker today. And um, I'm going to put this on hold for a moment because I don't even know if we're connecting through to anybody at all at this moment in time. Hello. I hope you can hear me now. Uh, we've had some technical problems, so please hang with us for a moment while we get these straightened out. Um, I believe we have Ronaldo on the line. Ronaldo, are you there now? Can you hear me, Howard? Yes, we can. Okay. So let me begin afresh. Again, this is Howard Smith, and I'll be your host today for today's program. Uh, since we're a little bit running behind here, I'm going to condense this thing down a little bit. Uh, in addition to our two topics, we're going to be talking about uh, what you need to know about the new healthcare law, also about uh, creative mythologies and Hawaiian culture. We're going to be having a guest calling in, Roger Epstein, who's a senior partner at Cade and Schutte, one of the largest law firms in Hawaii. Um, and we'll be going that. Ronaldo, why don't you take it away at the moment, and we will talk to you later. Okay, well, I'm sorry, everyone, for all the challenges we're having technically. Don't know why that's happening today, but it is. Uh, and I just want one quick um, announcement to make before I, um, before I get into the topics of the day. We're going to have a, a, a guest on, <laughs> hopefully, technology will let us. Roger Epstein is going to be joining us. He's the senior most partner of the largest, uh, one of the oldest and the largest law firm in the state of Hawaii. And he's going to be talking about the voyage of aloha. So stick around for that in a few minutes. Uh, to launch today's show, though, Howard, I wanted, as people know, we wanted to talk about health care. And, and the reason I want to talk about health care uh, is because with the Supreme Court decision up in the air, I wanted to put a context around what this decision is all about. And so let, let's 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 start with the biggest picture possible. Do we have a good health care system in America? Well, we pay literally twice as much for health care as anybody else in the world. So that's not a good starting point. Twice as much, and our health care system, as judged by virtually every independent objective standard is not even in the top 20 in the world. So we're paying twice as much, and we don't have anywhere near as good a system. So that's, that's our starting point. How could this happen? We'll talk about it in a moment. 
But what about the claim that many people make that we have the best health care system in the world? Well, actually, we do in one sense. For the 1% of the people, for the richest 1%, and I might say even the richest 2%, we probably have the best health care system because if we've got the best system that money can buy if you can throw unlimited amounts of money at it. Let me give you an example. A very famous man died this week, Mike Wallace, intrepid reporter, 60 Minutes. What's interesting about the story, though, is less than three years ago, Mike Wallace died, he was over 90 years old. Less than three years ago, when he was 88, Mike Wallace had a triple bypass surgery. Now, what country in their right mind would give an 88-year-old triple bypass heart surgery? Because it's at, the end, at that stage of your life, your ability to survive it is questionable. But more importantly, you become such a burden on the system, which is something we're all going to be facing as we baby boomers, of which I am one, start to age. So this is called the end-of-life care, end care problem. Well, for those people who are super rich, one or two percenters, end of life is no problem. They'll just keep replacing parts. And the most famous case, of course, is Vice President Cheney. Were he not former Vice President of the United States, Cheney would have been dead years ago. I mean, numerous heart surgeries, numerous heart attacks, and an implanted artificial pump next to his belt on the outside of his body when his heart wasn't working to keep him alive long enough to finally get a heart, a new one, and... He's not a young man either. We're not talking about somebody in the 60s anymore. So the question is, how come our system is so broken? Well, the Supreme Court will take that up over two basic issues if they don't strike the entire law down. One issue is called the mandate, and the other is called expansion of Medicaid. Now, why is this important to you? Well, folks, here's what I want you to really be paying attention to. Over 16% of U.S. spending, GDP, goes towards health care. So that means, whether you like it or not, 16% of every cup of coffee, every donut, every piece of bread, every piece of rent you pay, everything you buy, indirectly or directly, is going to support a system, which I've already said to you, is twice as expensive as everybody else's in the world, and is not even the top 20 in terms of effectiveness. Because the top 1% or 2% get phenomenal coverage, and the other 98% get screwed. I mean, that's basically what's going on in America. But the worst hurt people are the bottom 50 million with no insurance at all. So what the mandate says, in effect, is we're going to require you, if you're a young, healthy person, to have insurance, as they have done in Massachusetts when Governor Romney first invented the system. Remember, what we call Obamacare today was a Republican proposal put into place by Republican Governor Romney in Massachusetts, which we now know 10 years later worked even better than he predicted, producing more savings than predicted, and creating greater coverage. The Ronaldo, Ronaldo, let me just ask you one quick question and, and sure. break your flow here for a moment. Is Here you have him running, obviously, as the, the candidate for the Republican Party, created a successful health care system. Why is he running away from it? Why because, is the country running away well, from well, it? Well, I mean, look, I mean, that is so obvious. I think that if people don't on their own have the ability to see what Romney is doing is he's pandering to a small portion of the electorate, not more than 15 to 20 percent, called the Tea Party, who are radically uh, distortive of what the role of government is. You can't even call it radically conservative, because it's not conservative. It's destructive. The stuff that these people want to do, such as um, uh, basically eliminate government virtually entirely. I've heard several competent 
very, very right-wing Tea Party people say, taxing anything is the equivalent of taking my property. I'm against it. Everybody should be completely on their own. Obama was correct when he said the Ryan budget is thinly veiled social Darwinism, meaning it's thinly disguised that what that budget's really about is leaving everybody to drift for themselves. And that only works for the very wealthy. It does not work for the rest of us. But let's go back to why people should care. This is why I'm really really focusing today's conversation. You may think it doesn't matter what the Supreme Court does, and in one sense it doesn't. I'll explain why in a moment. But what you really need to know is what are the issues at stake? Well, the first issue is if you don't have a mandate of the six, nine states that tried it, six have already repealed it. Because when you don't have a mandate, young, healthy people choose not to have insurance, and the only people who are insured are very sick people, so the cost of it goes up disproportionately. So to get the savings, you have to mandate it. And for those who say that it's an infringement on your civil liberties, I want to point out there is nowhere in the health care law that it says that you're subject to criminal process for failure to have insurance. What it says is, just like you can't drive a car in, in the state of California, for example, unless you have insurance, you can't drive a car in the state of Hawaii unless you have insurance. And almost every state in America is considered settled law that if you want to drive a car, you have to have insurance. Now, that is because if you don't require everybody to have insurance, only the worst drivers would. Now, the idea is, therefore, you spread the cost at the social cost. There's no question that that is constitutional law. The mandate works the same way for health care. So I would say... Under any normal Supreme Court, there's no question this case would not even be on appeal. This case would not even be heard. It is so clearly not a matter of constitutional law. In fact, I want to say one thing. Some of the most ridiculous spokespeople, Paul Ryan being an example, have said that if you give it to us as a tax credit instead of 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 a bill that we have to pay, then it would be okay with us. Well, that's changing the label, but it's not changing the economic effect. And if all that makes this case legal or illegal is a label, not the economic effect, by its, on its very face, it's a silly argument. But let me go to why this is critical. We have the worst Supreme Court in the history of the United States. People who've listened to the show have heard me say that before, many, many times over the last year. These are the people who, for the first time in the history of the United States, said, don't count the votes in a presidential election. That was Bush v. Gore. This is the group of people who said companies or citizens and therefore they're allowed to give unlimited amount of money to the political process. That's Citizens United. And by the way, if it weren't for the Citizens United case, Mitt Romney would not be the nominee. It's the unlimited amount of PAC money that's made Mitt Romney able to bury every one of his competitors, not his popularity, as everybody who reads the news knows. Number three, this is the court that just a week and a half ago said you can be arrested for jaywalking and strip-searched. In fact, if you read the decision carefully, you don't even have to be arrested. They can see you jaywalked. They can detain you. They can pull your trousers down and check every body cavity on your person without any warrant whatsoever. If that's not a police state, I don't know what is. And if it's not an, if it's not an overt attempt by this court to impose a Darwinian, aristocratic, I would say fascist rule on, the, on this nation we call America, stripping us of our rights, I don't know what, what more they could do. Because we're also allowed now to be detained indefinitely without being brought to trial or accused. And that's true of citizens in this country, not just people from abroad. So you put these together, you go, okay, now this Supreme Court, who's clearly the worst Supreme Court in the history of the United States, they're even worse than the court that did the very famous case 
that allowed for slavery way, way, way back in 1860, right? That that court, which everybody used to say that the Justice Taney Court, T-A-N-E-Y, who was the Supreme Court Justice's chief at that time, they used to say the Taney Court is so bad because of the Dred Scott decision, that's what legalized slavery, that the Civil War broke out as a result. This court, I've said repeatedly on this show, and I want to repeat it again today, and particularly in light of Citizens United, Gore v. Bush, and the strip search decision, this is the worst court in the history of the United States, and they will be a laughingstock in, in any annals of history that, that survive this period of time. Bernard, let me also ask you, and it's kind of a devil's advocate question, is how do we change the Supreme Court? Well, the um, Supreme Court can only be changed over time by a president who appoints new Supreme Court justices. So this court, when if you have a reasonable president who puts a, a reasonable jurist, not a political hack, like Antonin Scalia, who is a political hack with a first-rate mind, uh, and, 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 and I could name several other justices who equally are offensive in terms of their political ideology, and Roberts is not much better, frankly. And clearly Clarence Thomas is incapable of being on the bench. And then you get the guys like, uh, uh, oh gosh, uh, it, 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 the entire court to me is so um, riff with politics and no jurisprudence that formerly I was a constitutional law scholar. i got to tell you, it is discouraging beyond belief. It's people like this wearing those black robes that caused us all to throw the tea in Boston Harbor at the very beginning of the Revolution. But now, how does it affect you as a common person? What I want you to hear is that if they strike down the mandate, then the, the law will fall apart. If they strike down the expansion of Medicare benefits, then 50 million people will once again fall between the cracks and be uninsured. Where do those people go? They go to our emergency room at a cost of five to six times what it would be if we insured them. In fact, some estimates say it's higher than ten times higher because the cost of running emergency rooms is much higher than the cost of treating people prophylactically. So how does it affect you? Well, if this decision goes the wrong way, it will leave you having to create a new health care law. And it, you can't wait because it will bankrupt the nation to go back to where we were. It was bankrupt. That's why they started it. That's why they, they passed the law in the first place. Ronaldo, so every real, single real, person has to be paying attention to this issue in the upcoming election because either you're going to have a health care law that they will uphold, in which case we then need to improve it, or you'll have no health care law and we're going to have to create a new one and you must see to it that somebody gets elected who will put a good one in place or the country will literally go bankrupt. That's ours. Ronaldo, let me go back to the thing about the president appoints the uh, Supreme Court, uh, the new members, certainly. And I don't know, people sometimes forget or overlook that very simple fact that oftentimes when we vote for president, we're also voting for a Supreme Court. Um, as the justices age and retire, uh, which does not happen that frequently, um, it is the president's responsibility to find the right jurist who can do these things uh, and be placed on the court. Um, and if you end up with a conservative president, you're going to get a continuing conservative court. You end up with Obama being well, back. I, this, wait, 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 wait. This, this court's not conservative. This court is outside the boundaries. This court is a proactive third arm of government that's gone rogue. That's what this court is. Let's call it for what it is. These are okay. not conservatives. A conservative justice is Lewis Powell, and he's considered the, the moderate wing of the court. Right. Okay. These people are so far beyond the law. These people have basically engaged with their right-wing buddies in a colossal 
conspiracy to take over the country, and they're succeeding. And by the way, it's working for the 2% and the 1%. I mean, people got to wake up and smell the coffee here. So when I say to you, you have got to pay attention to this issue in the upcoming election, it's a life-or-death issue for the United States of America. It's not something you can take lightly. Okay. By the way, I've got some good news, Howard. And I'm delighted to be president of the World Business Academy. The business community has finally figured out that this absurd Tea Party agenda, notice I don't call it right-wing, I call it Tea Party, this absurd Tea Party agenda is actually hurting the business community so bad the business community is beginning to realize, oh my goodness, we better take back the Republican Party. And that's what they did with Romney. They took it back from the Tea Party. That's exactly what happened. The Tea Party had three candidates up. All three went down eventually. Centorum, Gingrich, and of course you could say Ron Paul was the, it was, a, was a Tea Party favorite, although Ron Paul is the most legitimate guy running as far as I'm concerned from their side because he at least is consistent. He's, he's a libertarian. He, he doesn't shade his views for the popularity of the moment. I think his views on many things are right, on many things are wrong, but it's easy to see where Ron Paul stands. Uh, do you think do you think Romney and I'll just jump ahead here a little bit. Do you think Romney might go so far as to try to pick a Tea Party vice president or a, a such as a Michelle Bachman to be his running mate? Do you think he would do something like that? Who knows? At this point the thing has become He's got a woman arts. problem, he's got a Tea Party problem, he's got a right wing problem. Yeah, but you know, he's also got the history of watching what happened to his buddy McCain when he put on Sarah Palin. Mm-hmm. By the way, I just want to make one last thing. The, the Congressional Budget Office, which everybody agrees is the neutral number cruncher, as recently as March 14th updated its study of the new health care law and decided that there, it's going to produce 8% more savings than the president originally projected. That means the savings to the taxpayers for this new health care law is going to be $50 billion or more through 2021. I'm quoting from the Congressional Budget Office itself as recently as March 14th. So this thing is not only working, it's working better than they told us it would. So to have a right-wing agenda would be not doing this the right-wing a service. There are I, – I used to like a lot of things. Some things about Barry Goldwater scared me, frankly, like bombing North Vietnam with nuclear weapons. But the idea that Barry Goldwater, as a staunch conservative, would today have no place in the Republican Party, okay, because his views are actually, although they're conservative, they're within the boundaries of the, the normal political dialogue in America. The Supreme Court is outside those boundaries currently. Now, if they can be brought back into those boundaries, we can save our, our form of representational government, and we can put this country back on the tracks. In fact, the last part of this show today, Howard, I want to talk about some things that, I mean, unemployment's down to 8.3%, 8.2%. We can produce substantially better employment numbers in the next five months with doing a very few things, doing them right. Okay. So there's lots well, of Ronaldo, Ronaldo, let me let me cut you off for a moment there. We do want to move ahead to our section with uh, Roger Epstein. So are there any final comments you want to make about health care before we... All, all, all on on to Roger. It seems like it's an arcane subject. It seems like it's conservatives battling, Republic, uh, battling liberals. It's not. It's about a rule of law. So if, in fact, the Supreme Court, which is outside the boundaries, strikes this thing down, you all must go to the streets and support immediately passing a replacement. And I have some solutions as to what I think that should be. And, frankly, it'll be a lot better than what, what's on the table right now. And last point I'm going to make, the one and two percenters, it turns out, if they don't watch it, 
could get hit with taxes as high as 43% by the end of this year by a combination of the increased cost of their health care programs because of the uninsured and because the Bush tax cuts end up being revoked because they automatically die December, 20, December 31 if they're not changed. So the, the, the 2%ers and the 1%ers could get hit with a disproportionately higher penalty a year from today because their greed led them into that trap. So that's all I want to say. Folks, watch this. Please don't go to sleep. This is the most important political year in the history of the country since 1776, and I mean that sincerely. This is the most important year since 1776. And, f- and the final note on that is the decision is supposed to be handed down in June, I believe. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll be back to comment on it in June and July Absolutely. and see where we go from there. Now let me see if we have Roger on the line and see if I can get him in here. Hold on one moment. Roger, is that you? Are you listening in? I am. Can you hear me? Yes, we can oh. hear you perfectly. Okay. Aloha, Roger. Okay. Aloha. Ronaldo, I'm going to let you introduce this section since Roger is a good friend of yours. And uh, take it away. Roger, how are you? Very good, very good. You know, the, the comments you're making are right in line with what I want to talk about for a reason you haven't mentioned, Ronaldo, but it really got me enthusiastic and ex- interested. Go ahead, Roger. What's, that, what's the point? Well, what I want to talk about uh, and what you've asked me to talk about is the conference we're having in Hawaii uh, uh, about uh, transitioning the world into a paradigm of uh, uh, knowing that we're all connected to each other. This is what Willis Harmon said uh, when he formed the World Business Academy, that we're going through the greatest transition in the history of the world since Copernicus discovered that the sun does not revolve around the earth. And the reason for that is because we now know scientifically what the great spiritual traditions have always told us, that we're all connected to each other energetically uh, uh, and many other ways perhaps, but that the reality of the world is that we're connected to each other and why aren't we living from that paradigm? Why are we still living from a paradigm of separateness. One way to look at that is people today are not living in a place of reality. Well, this huge transition, this huge transition uh, might look like what the church was doing when Copernicus uh, made his statements, and and he wasn't even allowed to say it again, and, and his book was published posthumously to show that, in fact, the earth does revolve around the sun, and then you had a period of renaissance and scientific exploration that was Fantastic. Well, I think we're in the same kind of transition now, where yeah, we're let changing, and the right wing and many people in the country are resisting that change, just like the church resisted, or just like any other incredibly important change would be resisted. So some people want to go backwards to where we were, and many people, uh, like the World Business Academy, like the movement that Barbara Marks Hubbard has been doing for some time, want to go forward into into a new paradigm where we're connected to each other, where we operate from that that consciousness level. Yeah, and, and let, Roger, let me just introduce real quickly for people, the conference we're talking about that Roger's heading up is called the Voyage of Aloha. Is that the official name, Roger? It's Ho'oma'i That's a, a Hawaiian word for a sacred voyage and translated loosely into the Voyage of Aloha. Good. So the Voyage of Aloha, Sacred Voyage of Aloha, I even like that better, is going to happen on the 25th of May in Honolulu, Hawaii, and it's going to celebrate two things. 
One is the 20th anniversary of the Joseph Campbell Foundation, of which you're a board member. And the other is the 25th anniversary of the World Business Academy, which I founded with Willis's help back in 1986. So uh, it's it's a double it's a double uh, anniversary, and uh, I'd like you to just tell people a little about how you're going to achieve this broadening of consciousness in such a beautiful place as Honolulu. Well, uh, uh, the 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 two anniversaries are fantastic, as as both those organizations have strong connections to Hawaii. With you having your branch office, I say, out in Kona and the Joseph Campbell Foundation being uh, where Campbell spent half his life. His wife was uh, 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 born and raised here from an old family and where he's actually buried here. And the idea of Hawaiian spirituality being a significant piece of uh, uh, how we raise this consciousness. And so that uh, Hawaii is is a place where... And not only do we have this in, incredible indigenous culture, uh, which is close to nature and showing us how we get back to nature, but uh, the indigenous community probably lives as harmoniously here, despite all our problems, uh, as as in any other uh, uh, developed country in the world. Hawaii, of course, is a beautiful place with fantastic energy for meeting and discussing and helping people be in a place where they can really get in touch with their center and get in touch with the fact that we are really uh, spiritual beings as well as uh, physical beings. So we're going to meet here uh, uh, Labor Day, uh, excuse me, Memorial Day weekend, uh, starting the 25th uh, Friday evening and going through the Monday, and we're going to interweave these concepts of uh, Hawaiian spirituality and uh, how you live with each other on an island, uh, maybe the the island planet Earth, and uh, uh, the Joseph Campbell Foundation's ideas and the World Business Academy. So one of the things the Campbell Foundation has is uh, uh, the hero's journey. That's one of Campbell's fundamental themes. Uh, So how do we make a journey from uh, living in a place of separateness? Our minds are, are believing that we're separate, to living in a place of connectedness, which we now know is the reality of the world. Yeah, and, you know, uh, Roger, we, we, when we set out the notice of this conversation today, we reminded people that Joseph Campbell, probably the greatest living mythologist of all time, before he died said, quote, it's time to create new mythologies, close quote. And I think what you're talking about is this, is this not only the hero's journey, which everybody knows is a metaphor and, a, and at the same time a mythology, where we go through the changes in our lives and to, to rediscover our own, uh, the hero within, so to speak. But what you're really saying is that the Hawaiian culture uh, and the uniqueness of the Hawaiian islands themselves, sitting as they are in the middle of the Pacific Asian basin, the, the place where the Occident and the Orient meet, this is a place where a new mythology could arise out of the sacred spirit of aloha. And I'm impressed that the word aloha, folks, means to breathe together. So to go from a separateness consciousness to a new evolved human consciousness of collective reality is the opportunity of this conference. Is that am I summarizing it correctly? That really nicely, Ronaldo. And I and I think our concept and the concepts that others have uh, of this is is that we've got to do this individually. I can't tell you how you can live from a place of connectedness. You've got to find that for yourself. 
It's a journey. It's a voyage that you have to take for yourself. And what we want to do is gather people with some ideas about how those journeys have been taken, like the many heroes' journeys, uh, like the voyage of the Hokulea, which is uh, a, a boat that was sailed by Hawaiians uh, after uh, much uh, loss of of uh, the voyaging. You know, the, Hawaii, the Polynesians voyaged from all across the Pacific Ocean with no navigational instruments, and that was being lost. But the Hokulea was a, is a ship that has been... Uh, was a reconstructed double. It's the old, the old, um, the old Hawaiian voyaging canoe the, the, with, with the with the central the main body of the boat, and then these outriggers. So this giant outrigger canoe was rebuilt in the in the same fashion, I understand, as the original. So it's, it's a replica. The whole it is right. It's a replica. And 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 that knowledge was being lost. And 30 years ago, a Micronesian helped train some Hawaiian people, particularly Nainoa Thompson. And they voyaged from Hawaii to Tahiti with no navigational instruments. How did they get in touch with nature in such a way, the ocean, the air, their bodies, so that they actually were able to make this voyage? And, in fact, uh, there's a plan now for uh, next year to take that boat all the way around the world. And, and there's a great story about uh, when Nainoa Thompson was on his first sailing trip from Hawaii to Tahiti, he was in the middle, and he was a little confused about whether to go south or west, and he knew there were some rocks he would see around that place. Well, he started going south, and all of a sudden a whale jumped out of the ocean. And he said, oh, my God, if that whale hits us, the boat's going to capsize. And so he turned south further and, and as fast as he could go, and then the, the whale came over and leaned on the boat. And he got scared again, and he tried to move as fast as he could, and then the whale came up and leaned on the boat again, and he said, I got it. And he turned in the direction the whale was pushing him. And the next morning he found the rocks he was looking for, and it moved him on his trip. And by the way, people, people who don't know to know it, Tom, he's, he is a very grounded guy. We're not talking about somebody who is having a hallucinogenic experience. We're talking about somebody who was so in touch with nature that for some reason of synchronicity, that whale became his helper. Isn't that an incredible story, a true incredible story? But we're not talking, I mean, we aren't talking about that kind of magic. We're talking about what Campbell says, when you go on the hero's journey, doors open where there once were walls. And the universe really does take care of us in many ways, like the Taoists say, if we really stay in touch with what's going on, if we become awake, like the Buddha says. And so there's so many me, people... Hey, Roger, so let me capture this way. So what you're saying is it's a sacred voyage from separateness to unity in, and through the through the through the appreciation of the ability to navigate that distance and this is the unique hero's journey that you're providing people an opportunity to go on in Honolulu. And, Very and, and we're going to have 3 days of really looking at those concepts with masters uh, Elizabeth Satoris will be here from the World Business Academy, along with you, Ronaldo and Jim Channon. Uh, the director, executive director of the Campbell Foundation will be here. And then after those discussions, we're going to move to a beautiful spot on the north shore of Oahu on the ocean, and we're going to individually, in small groups, look and say, what is my, where am I in this path? How do I move to that reality facing 5,000 years of, of, of history of separateness in our 
in our traditions, how do I make that leap, that journey, like the journey uh, without navigational instruments from here to Tahiti, and each person in a beautiful setting with meditative uh, uh, places all around us and a lot of Hawaiian rituals and spirituality, how do I find my own path to that journey? Because this is an individual journey, even though it's all a collective journey uh, that we have to make, we we really have to get there ourselves individually. So it's not to tell anybody what to do. It's to give you some tools, give you some inspiration, and then work with each person there to find their own journey and how they get to living from the reality of our connectedness. I, well, I really, Roger, I want to thank you for coming on because I, it's such a it's a not incredible opportunity. Right, and well, Roger. I, let me course, ask, let me ask the question too. Yeah. That these be answered, which is one, who is, should be registering for this event? What would be your, 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 the prime person to want to attend this? And how do they do it? Uh, thanks, Howard. Uh, anyone who really is, is ready, interested, or, or even uh, contemplating these ideas of moving towards the new reality uh, of connectedness uh, should come and, and, and voyage with us on this trip. Uh, the, the, we have a website, www.voyageofaloha.com. Is that one uh, word or multi, or two or three words? Voyageofaloha.com, one word? Voyageofaloha.com, one word. Okay, very good. Um, so I think everybody can handle that. Um, any last-minute comments, Roger, well, you want to add? Just, yeah, I just want to make one comment and let Roger finish up. And, Roger, I just want to repeat for people, there couldn't be a more beautiful setting than what you've arranged in Honolulu if you ever want an excuse to go to such a beautiful place on the planet, it's paradise. You get there on the 24th. The conference starts on the 25th. It'll be over by Monday the 28th. There is a post-conference event, Roger. Uh, we'll tell people about when they go to the website so they can spend another couple of days actually experientially doing some of these with Hawaiian elders and some of the brilliant people flying in from the Pacific Asian Beast and then from people like Elizabeth Satoris from, from Europe. So that's all going to happen between the 24th of May, uh, arrive, start, conference starts on the 25th. It's over by the 28th, post-conference ends on the 30th. Uh, Roger, I couldn't thank you enough. I w hope you come back in June and tell us how it went. Uh, give us a report. I'll be there, but it would be better to hear it from you. And I'm really looking forward to my trip to Honolulu in a few weeks to see you. Well, I'm looking forward to it, too. And let me just say one more thing, Ronaldo. This is not just one conference. This is a five- or ten-year program supported by the legislature of Hawaii and, and so many people here for Hawaii to take its place in this movement, for Hawaii to be what the legislature is calling the spiritual harmony capital of the world, and just to use all its wonderful gifts to help the world move to this next level of consciousness. Wonderful. The voyage, the sacred voyage of aloha from separateness to unity Honolulu, Roger, it's a blessing to know you, and thank you so much for putting this all together, and thank you to the Joseph Campbell Foundation. Roger, again, Thank you, Ronaldo, and thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed talking with you today, as always. Aloha. We appreciate it, and again, thanks again, Roger, and look forward Aloha. to it. Thank you, you, Howard. Aloha. Aloha to you, too. So, okay. Roger, uh, Roger's done his report. I'm really grateful that he came on to do that. Howard, do you want to go into the lightning round? Yes, let's do that. And as most of our regular listeners know, the lightning round is a session where we review a number of different asset classes, such as uh, bonds, equities, gold, and real estate. And Ronaldo, what's uh, on the hopper for today? Well, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, 
we've been saying for about three or four months now on the show, the stock market would go sideways. People saw it starting to spurt up in the first three months of this year, and they thought, oh, gosh, maybe we missed the opportunity to jump in. As you know, it's come down. It's still ahead. The Nasdaq's still ahead for the year. It, broke, it fell below 3,000, uh, but it's still doing well. It's probably, I'm going to say, 8% ahead for the year. Uh, the Dow is still ahead for the year a little bit. The uh, S&P 500 is still a little ahead for the year. But basically, we've gone sideways, pretty much sideways. And that will continue until the political stalemate in this country gets resolved. Uh, what's keeping the money – by the way, you know, the fact that the, unemploy, the unemployment rate is down to 8.3% right now, 8.2%, somewhere in that range, and could fall below 8% very easily, I mean very, very easily, if just a few things happen, it tells me that I'm hopeful. And like, well, I, I can't expect it, but I'd love to see that the, the Republican uh, Congress realizes that it's not in their elective interest, that they're going to get hurt at the polls if they keep blocking everything. And to, to let some legislation through, let me give you an example. The business community, which we speak for at the World Business Academy, the business community cannot believe, and I'm talking conservative Republican business people, agree with me on this, that the National Transportation Act can't be renewed. I mean, we need to rebuild 55% of the bridges in this country. We need, we need to pave our roads. We need to put in infrastructure. We need to have railroads work. And, and the, the business community, particularly the Republican conservative business community, is going, wait a minute, we thought, uh, you know, Republicans in Congress, we get that stuff. Well, this Congress, these Republicans are blocking it all because they're Tea Party Republicans, not real Republicans. Ronaldo, let me again. I'm going to play devil's advocate a lot today, but you think it's that they are truly Tea Party people, or is it that they simply do not want anything to happen positively while Obama is in control, so that they can blame him for yet economic failure that was triggered actually by the Bush administration, and somehow use that negativism to get back into even greater power in this next election? Howard, you said the same thing twice. You said, is it because they're Tea Party or because they're doing anything to frustrate Obama? I would, count, I would say to you that that is the essence of the Tea Party. The, the, the essence of the Tea Party is it's against anything that the president wants to do. I mean, the, the health care bill he passed was a Republican bill. I mean, it, 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 people have got to wake up and smell the coffee here. I mean, every time but he tries the, to take a Republican initiative, he, right. they, they even come out against that. The distinction I'm trying to make is, is motivation. You have on one hand opponents of Obama who simply want him out of power so they can push their agenda. Then you seemingly have Tea Party people who are truly anti-government in any form, and they don't want anything. No, but, it start, it's, but, no, but I think there's a 100% correlation. I think there's lots of people who want Obama out of power, out of power because they have a lot to gain. All the oil companies, for example. Exactly. Uh, some very large corporate interests want Obama out of office because they see, my goodness, he could bring in renewable energy. Look, oil is still at $103 a barrel, and we've told people on this show forever, there's no excuse for it. There's such a huge glutton surplus. It's starting to drop down, but you notice that it's still the same price as the pump. Well, the gouging that's going on by the oil companies, they want to keep doing that forever, and, they don't want, and, and the coal companies don't want to stop burning coal. So these, you have these huge entrenched interests the, you know, that, that are really against Obama who are not Tea Party. But I would say 100% of Tea Party is against Obama. And then there's a whole bunch of people who are against Obama that aren't in the Tea Party, and that explains why the Tea Party, with only 17 or 18% of the population, has a disproportionate impact. They've had allies in the business community that didn't realize that the business community itself is getting uh, the short end of the stick. So right now, you have a very few interests being served, oil and gas largely, 
and everybody else is being hurt. So we, we, it's time for the, the business community to say, wait a second, this country is not working. You can't run a railroad this way. You can't run a company this way, and you can't run a country this way. So those people who are against Obama are going to have to let it go so that we can have a functioning government. That's what's going to have to happen. Because our government's not functioning. Okay, well, let's, let's continue on with our look at assets. How do you think all of this is going to play out in other assets? We, we clearly well, we, oil. We, we, yeah, we said the uh, stock market would go sideways. I continue to predict for the next month you can assume that will be true. Uh, the, 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 the good factors will be offset by the negativity in Europe, which we'll come back to at the end of the hour. Uh, you can expect gold. We said you know, three or four months ago gold will go sideways. Gold's been going sideways. I think it will continue to go sideways. Uh, I think you're going to see um, – What I found interesting, by the way, Ronaldo, the other day, and this was when the market dropped – uh, within a two or three day period, uh, roughly about four to five hundred points, is that gold usually goes the other way when there's a panic. It usually goes up when people are panicking and selling stocks. Gold also went down that same time period. Well, you uh, know what? Uh, well, tell me. Why it's, I, I, that's why I'm raising it. Yeah, no, uh, because of the, 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 there's enormous deflationary pressures right now going on. So what's happening is if you look at um, what people's fear that the Japanese decade of, of deceleration could become global. And they're right. Uh, uh, people often look to China right now and they say, gee, China was growing at 10% a year. We'll be lucky if they do 7% this year, which is still plenty. They look at India, it was doing 7% a year, and they go, boy, we'll be lucky if they do 4 or 5%. That's still plenty. So they, but they're looking at deceleration. And when you decelerate or deflate, then all of a sudden the value of gold drops too. Now, the price of oil is deflating. I think it's down by about, what, 10, 15, 10 12% from the high right now? Um, probably not. I don't think it ever peaked actually that high. The talk of it going higher was probably more well, no, what I'm talking than the about actual price take, rise. Well, no, but if you, take, if you take when it was at 125 a gallon, a barrel, what, less than two years ago, right? Did it get no, to 125 a barrel? No, it did not. The, uh, the North Sea oil did, but the West Texas crude has not... Gone past okay, it was probably about 110. Yeah. Okay, so the Brent and Brent mm -hmm. today is probably what about 113. Um, North Sea is probably a little bit higher than that, I think. Yeah. Yeah, but not much. I think it's about about there. So, so basically, you've had a 10 to 11 dollar shift on Brent North Sea, which is about 8 percent, 9 percent. Okay. Mm -hmm. That that 8 to 9 percent drop. Let's let's use that number, and, and then I'm not sure what the West Texas numbers would be, but I'm pretty sure those are good for the for Brent North Sea oil. That drop is itself a deflationary drop. And as you know, and we've talked about on this program, there's so much surplus of oil around the world right now that it keeps accumulating faster than they can control political systems to pay for it. So you're going to see continuing downward pressure on the price of oil, which continues to get downward pressure on the price of gold. By the way, 7.5% discount offered by Iran last what, two days ago. So Iran, in order to run the sanctions, is offering their customers the equivalent of 7.5% discount on Iranian oil purchases. And the way they get that is they give you free interest on, and, you know, you can take six months to pay free interest, and they calculate it's worth about 7.5% a barrel. So at the end of the day, what you're seeing is deflationary pressure on oil because there's too much of it, and that's not going to change in the foreseeable next few months. You're seeing deflationary pressures on the global economy. China, India, U.S. is getting a lot of pressure to hold it back because of political things. And in Europe, you're having enormous deflationary pressures, enormous recessionary pressures. UK, back in recession. Ireland, back in recession. Spain, huge recession. 
Portugal recession, Italy's in recession. Everybody's going into recession over there, and they haven't solved the fundamental problem of the euro, which we'll get to in a second, which means that the deflationary pressures in Europe will continue. And you also have a very bad political theory right now called austerity, which is collapsing economies faster than we can write about it. And that's the same, that's the same program, by the way, that, that, that Paul Ryan wants to put into effect in America called thinly-veiled Darwinianism, social Darwinianism. So I, I think it's a time for a lot of deflationary pressures. That's tending to offset the fear on the gold side. Well, any other uh, commodity? Do you agree with that, Howard? You think it's going I, back to I think yeah, we're definitely in a in a state where deflation is a bigger issue than certainly inflation. Despite the fact that since 2008, which is now three and a half years, the drumbeat from one side of the political fence has kept screaming inflation as a great fear to the point where we still have a good chunk of our population panicked over the fear of inflation um, at a time when things are going the other direction. Well, yeah, uh, I find that, that somewhat incredible that politicians continue to pound that drum uh, despite best evidence that they're completely wrong. And by the way, and, I want And that uh, the media has also failed to acknowledge its own mistake. Yeah, by the way, well, the media is so shallow. I mean, I don't know what the fourth estate has failed us so badly for the last few years. But, but, but Paul Krugman had a very, and you know how much I respect Krugman, he had a very interesting column within the last two weeks in which he pointed out that the, the, the statutory responsibility of the Fed is to do two things. One is to basically control pricing, so it's an in, inflationary break. It, it, they're supposed to be keeping prices appropriate is the right language. So that means making sure that inflation doesn't get out of control. But the second one is to be supportive of the economy. Now, they're not doing the second one at all well. They're worrying too much about the first one at a time when inflation is not the threat. And did you see that the vice chairman of the Fed just yesterday, Yellen, a very very talented female woman, a woman who's been involved now with the Fed for a number of years. She's the vice chairman. And, 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 and she basically said that she sees that the Fed may have to be more accommodative, accommodating in the next few months because the economy may need more support. Now, that approach that Yellen's taking is starting to signal that the Fed realizes it has two, two, two objectives. What I wanted to really stress, though, is that if the Fed were doing its job properly, it would also be educating the Congress on how foolishly they're conducting the economy. See, I think the Fed has the wisdom to know how to run the economy, and they're not exercising the moral authority they should to help the Congress understand what's really going on. You made the comment a second ago, which is correct, that it's hard to believe that politicians are beating the inflation drum. Well, Krugman makes the point that if the Fed was doing its twin job well, a little bit of inflation would be a good thing. And he specifically said, and I agree, 2 to 4%. Why would that be a good thing? Well, 2 to 4% actually would resolve the housing crisis much easier. Because what it does is it then allows the values to come back in the housing market. And once those values start to come back, there's a floor on housing. Once there's a floor on housing, the unemployment rate will drop by at least one to two percentage points. And by the way, the housing market is firming up even as we speak. There's a great proposal in front of the uh, small business. The, the uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are considering, which I think they should do, basically mortgage reductions so that people whose houses are underwater, meaning they have less, they have negative equity in their home, could bring them back into a positive equity condition, in which case they won't walk away, in which case that house won't be on the market, in which case it dries up the amount of 
houses that will go into foreclosure, which allows the market to firm. Once the market starts to firm, which it's already doing anyway, then prices start to rise, and then, then there's no foreclosure crisis. So we, we need to see the market for the housing firm up. A little bit of inflation would assist in that. And to have a, close to, what, 1% inflation right now is not serving anybody's interests. Right. The irony is that the Fed, since 2008, has done a 180-degree change in how they approach economic news. They have been so forthwith, so out there, so public with all of their pronouncements, all of their things. Their intent has changed radically from the days of Greenspan, where everything was kept very close to the chest, to where they are telling us way in advance everything about their moves, why they're doing things, when they expect to do things, so that there are no surprises and that people can, and firms, investment entities can operate in this more stable atmosphere. Uh, it's ironic that as they're doing that, less and less of that real knowledge is getting permeated out to the rest of the world, particularly through the media or through to our politicians. Uh, they seem to be more fixated than ever on concepts that have nothing to do with reality. Um, well, I, and I think that's right. That's, I, and I, I think people should therefore, I mean, by all means, Google Yellen, Y-E-L-L-E-N, the, the vice chairman of the Fed. And um, what what you're going to – her name is Janet, by the way, J-E-N-E-T, Janet Yellen, Y-E-L-L-E-N. She's the vice, Federal Reserve vice chairman. And you'll see some articles coming out as recently as the 12th of April, which the last time I checked was today, on how um, we need to balance better this inflation fear, and get more into the idea of, wait a minute, a little bit of inflation is okay because we can use that to help rebuild the economy. You know, it's sort of like if you get so doctrinaire, ooh, I can't have any inflation, you get like the Germans. I mean, the Germans are so afraid of the, of the Weimar Republic repeating itself, which was runaway inflation, that they are overly correcting and forcing austerity on the, all the countries of Europe and they're creating an enormous recession in Europe, which is totally avoidable. There's only one country that should have gone into deep, deep. Re- well, the one country that should have gone into deep recession would be, of course, the United Kingdom because Cameron had such a foolish austerity program of his own. Right. But apart from that, in Greece, there was no reason we. And you might make the argument Spain. There was no reason for Ireland to go back into recession, except because of the German austerity program. There was no reason that the Italians had to end up there, except the German austerity program. The German austerity program is hurting their worst ally, France. And by the way, Mike Sarkozy, the presidency. So there's a lot of these factors. And, and I hope that when people listen to these things that I throw out, they'll call up and ask us questions or send us emails for questions for next month. And let's go into the things that you're most interested in because, as you can tell, there's an extraordinarily wide variety of factors that are constantly in play. And which ones you look at and how you evaluate them gives you the intelligence you need for you to make a good collective decision, for you to make a good political decision at the ballot box, for you to make a good decision for your own financial affairs. Uh, Howard, was there any other thing we should hit on with the no, United before think, I go to Europe? I think we, we do should go to Europe now. We have about eight minutes left, nine minutes left, and I know we wanted to talk about, in terms of current events, an article that George Soros just wrote in the Financial Times of London and talking about the euro. So, Ronaldo, why don't you jump on that? And okay, bear well, in mind, we're down to eight minutes. Okay, let's. I'll do a quick one on, 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 and then throw in some questions at the end, and we'll wrap it up. The, I have profound respect for George Soros. He's probably one of the greatest, if not the greatest, monetary um, theorists of all time who basically understands and has made more money in currency markets 
than anybody, any other single individual alive. And um, Soros, with an article that he released that uh, came out today, there was a pre-release yesterday, but it released that came out today in the, in the Financial Times of London, basically said, oh my gosh, this is too important, meaning the fate of Europe, to be left to the German Bundesbank. That, that you should not allow one organization, which is not designed to run Europe, to be in the sole position to create what will happen and the havoc that will be wreaked in Europe. He, and he goes on to say, which is quite scary since I respect his, his ability so much, he makes several suggestions as to what could be done, which are extremely modest, by the way. Right. Before you and, do that, though, can you, can, Ronaldo, for those people who are not aware, can you basically very quickly tell us what the Bundesbank is doing that Soros is reacting against? Well, yeah, what, he, what, what the Bundesbank is doing is they're, they're allowing a disintermediation to occur. In other words, they're, they're using the pro- prolonged um, crisis in the euro to allow national currencies to resort themselves so that people are disinvesting in those currencies of nations with the least favorability, i.e. Greek, Spain, Italy, and they're permitting a balkanization of currencies within the euro in effect because they're letting a slow unwinding occur of the cross-collateralization of debt within the European Union. Can I, can I simplify that for people who might not follow yeah. you? Basically, what you're saying is the large banks of Europe, the Bundesbank being probably the, the biggest and strongest, are essentially buying debt and currency from only those entities in the European Union that are strong, and they're letting those that are weak sort of fall by the wayside in terms of investment dollars. Yes. Would that and, be a, a layman's that, way of looking at that? That's absolutely correct. It's a little more complicated because disintermediation means that you allow um, shifts to occur within the liquidity cycles that otherwise wouldn't occur if you weren't disintermediating. But the reason why it's you focus on it is because the Bundesbank stands for the German National Banking Authority. That's what Bundesbank is. And what the Bundesbank is doing is it's basically – forcing austerity on all the countries of Europe, which is causing each of those economies to collapse, which means they'll never achieve their targets for the amount of debt to GDP because every time they try to pay some debt back, their economies fall further, therefore their their GDP goes lower, therefore the ratio of debt goes higher. So it's, it's, it's a negative feedback loop. The cycle gets worse and worse, as we saw in Greece, as we see in Spain, as we see in Ireland, which threw them into a second recession, as we see in Italy, and as we're seeing in France now. So what the Bundesbank is doing, Soros observes, is causing a European-wide recession. And as he says, with the European crisis has entered a stage now which is potentially much more lethal, even though less volatile, meaning it's more programmed. We believe here at the Business Academy that, and by the way, Soros ends his article by saying, and you know what, even though I'm George Soros, they won't listen to me, so they're not going to take this advice anyway. And his advice is relatively like, I mean, it's easy medicine. We at the Business Academy continue to believe that the German government, Angela Merkel heads it, is trying to drive for political union for those states that are going to be the worst hurt by the continuing disintermediation and that the way they will have to get saved, quote-unquote, is by surrendering political autonomy so that some group of them, Germany at the lead, will have shared political authority. And I believe this comes out of an ancient German Teutonic belief system that goes back at least 400 years to the Hanseatic League. I believe that the Germans, 
and, 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 and from the Hanseatic League came Prussia, and from Prussia, which then became the dominant force, which then led to the modern Germany in the mid-1800s. That chain of continually increasing political control as a way to stabilize pan-national commercial trade, that tendency is what's at work with the Bundesbank. And, and if Merkel gets her way, the countries that will be helped and therefore will avoid the crisis will, would be the ones that give up or surrender political unity to the common new political unity, which will be a subset of the euro. However, it, and this is why Soros says it's potentially more lethal, and I'll end on this point. The big however is this. If they don't, because of national pride, any of those countries or all of them, it is more lethal because it will be the end of the euro. And what the Bundesbank is doing is they're making it easier for German banks to survive the end of the euro. That's what they're doing. Even though they have Merkel's policy is to create greater political union. That's do you think, do you think it's that, or do you think they're just simply short-sighted and, as we joked about last month, simply muddling through? No, do you think I think the Germans don't do that. <laughs> God bless them. They're very calculating. No, the Bundesbank is clearly disintermediating because they're the only group powerful enough to lead this in, in Europe, and they're buying time for everybody else to follow. So the giant banks in France, at least four of which could have collapsed if the, if the Greeks hadn't got their funding, those banks are disintermediating. The American banks disintermediating. American mutual funds disintermediating. They're all following the lead of the Bundesbank. And the Bundesbank clearly is disintermediating. So it seems to me that the Germans are playing two sides. They're, Angela Merkel's playing the political card, which is what she's really after, but the Bundesbank has got a whole card. Their insurance policy is if she fails and one of these states does hit the wall, the damage to the German banking community and those who follow it will be minimized because of the period of time that's now passed as they slowly but surely keep pulling themselves further apart. One other factor you should look at. Isn't it fascinating that the Bundesbank got the ECB, the European Community Bank, to give disproportionate, dispropor unfair advantage to the money it lent Greece at the cost of all the private investors? So the private investors in Greece, they got a huge haircut. The ECB didn't. That sent a message to the private financial community, you better follow our lead because those who follow our lead get covered by us and those who don't, don't. Well, do you, no, again, I'm going to play devil's advocate for the third time today on this. Um, money always goes in one of two directions, either greater return or greater safety. And one would think that regardless of any policy decision by the German bank, that other nations, other mutual funds, other things, they're either doing the one of those two things. They're either looking for a safe haven to park their dollars, which means they might go, let's say, for a lesser-paying bond or a more stable uh, large company stock, or they're deciding we're going to take risk and we're going to put money into a, Turk a Greek bond, rather, or a Spanish bond or an Italian bond that's play paying outrageous amounts of interest. Um, and clearly, because the fear is so great, um, it seems that money is simply moving, and it would on its own accord, whether it was policy decision or not, to the more conservative uh, approaches. Well, Any thoughts word, on that? Well, I think the word you're missing is the word apparent. Money moves to apparently, either to apparently greater safety or to apparently greater return, right? Absolutely. It, it, okay, so, so what's going on here is that what's apparent, and it was like, what is the, what, what is 
return in the situation. And what they're weighing is, it's not a great return. Let's say you can get, um, there was a time there where you could get 8%, 10% of Italian bonds. I think it's down to 6 now, 5, 6. It dropped as low as 4 when they were starting to pump up the, 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 the euro again. Well, what's the good of a 7 or 8% return on a bond that you think is going to go into default? Well, the apparent return may be 7 or 8%, but the real but return, the actual is, return be is zero. Right. right. Well, negative. So we so that's that's the real return. Okay. The real return on a bond is not the percentage you say you're going to pay in interest, it's can you pay the bond off? And if you can't, you're going to get hurt a lot worse in the bond phase than you are on the return of the interest. Right? Now, the other, same thing is true in terms of what 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 is apparent safety? Well, what the Bundesbank has communicated is you play with us, that is safe because you're with the Germans and the Germans are the strongest economy in Europe by far probably one of the strongest economies in the world. And the Germans, at the end of the day, you're gonna, the Germans will be left standing, the Chinese will be left standing, the Indians will be left standing, Singapore will be left standing, Taiwan will be left standing, South Korea will be left standing, Brazil will be left standing, but a whole lot of other people are going to be in complete chaos and wreckage, including the United States of America, if it doesn't get its act together politically. So if we get our act together politically, however... There's an enormous upside potential here because the amount of economic return that we could create in the U.S. globally would be enough to turn the global economy around, literally, that we've done many times before as the economic engine of the world. And if we did that, it would throw a wild card in the Bundesbank. And at that point, people would go for the return on Spanish and Italian bonds because they go, wait a second, the global economy is coming out of this crisis. The Germans are not going to force austerity on everybody else. They're not going to force economies of, of other countries to go go, in, uh, go down in order to get political unity. So it looks to us like we can take that higher return because it's not only an apparently higher return, it's going to be a true higher return. Spain won't go broke. Italy won't go broke. France won't go broke. Greece won't go broke. Ireland won't go broke. So all those things are true and possible if the U.S. economic engine were to harness itself once again to the global economy. The problem is our political situation in this country has led to such an incredibly stupid stalemate where despite all the things that the administration is doing right, they get handcuffed and hobbled, slowing down our ability to actually affect the global economy and therefore putting ourselves in jeopardy as well as the rest of Europe. That's really what's going on. Very good. Ronaldo, we're actually running a little over right now. Any last-minute comments you want to make to wrap this up today? People, please, 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 for your own self-interest, and for those of your children, your nephews, your nieces, your grandparents, your brothers, your sisters, and anybody you care about in your community, please pay enormous attention to the politics of the United States. You have got to realize we are sitting at a time when we are literally on the edge of a razor. If it goes right, you're going to see some opportunities that you couldn't believe are huge. And if it goes wrong, you're going to see a depth of economic destruction that will exceed the Great Depression. So you got a choice. Go for the moon, go for the stars, make it a greater world, a greater economy. Go on a voyage from separateness to oneness. See that by all of us winning, we each individually win. You do that, and we'll have an enormously successful economy for the next 20, 30 years that will make what we're doing today look like child's play. You go in the other direction, folks, or you let the forces of regression take over. And this economy will sink so fast 
and so badly that you will be very, very, very unable to protect yourself and your family. You won't have the ability to do so. Most likely. It's a good, re- a good reminder that the words government and economy are not really nouns. They're verbs that That's require right. active participation or they become stagnant and dry up and die. Um, as a reminder, you know, let, let, me, let, me quote, let me quote Jefferson. The mm-hmm. price of freedom is constant vigilance. Very, very true and very appropriate for our times. Uh, as a reminder to our listeners, our next show in May will be on the 10th, which is, again, the second Thursday of the month at 11 a.m. Pacific time. Um, Ronaldo will be juggling that show alone. I will be in the mountains of Italy on my friend's farm uh, studying subsistence farming from the 1850s. Uh, you can also follow us on the Academy's website at worldbusiness.org. If you've missed a show or want to revisit this show, uh, simply scroll down on either side. You'll see the Blog Talk radio link uh, and Ronaldo's picture, and simply click there to listen to any of our back shows as you wish. And with that, I thank you all for calling in today. Uh, again, we'll be back in May. Not me, but Ronaldo. And I look forward to catching up with you all in June as well. With that, I thank you and say good day. Goodbye, Ronaldo. Goodbye, Howard. Thanks very much. Okay, take care now. Bye-bye. Aloha.